you guys. Tuck, you said you struggled to follow that song. How am I supposed to follow that? Tonight we talk about grumbling. What do we really have to grumble? What do I really have to grumble about? Philippians chapter 2. And if your heart wasn't already tender, it should be now. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 14 in our focus. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Hmm. Father, speak to us tonight. So as we look at Philippians 2, um, you know, focusing on this idea of grumbling, I thought it was important to back up a couple verses and give a little bit of context. It's the same reason I opened up with uh, the whole service in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, 13. But uh, point number one is to provide us a little bit of context. Uh, and it tells us that we are to view your entire life and each moment through God's plan for salvation. So as we are doing Thanksgiving, as we are looking at how we give thanks, as we're looking at how we process all the things that are before us, um, we have to set everything in context. And I think the context that we need to do is we try to make sense of what's going on is that our, we have to view our entire life and each and every moment through God's plan for our salvation. We have to view everything through what he has already done because it gives us perspective. And we need perspective. Um, I think the best perspective we can have is the ultimate picture of God's love, the death of Christ on the cross for our good. So keeping that in mind, we're going to press forward and look through the next couple of verses and, and process them. Um, the context of Philippians is important. Anybody, Philippians is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I absolutely love it. Um, and Paul's writing this book, and he's talking about all these great, nice things. He's talking about joy. He's talking about peace, and he's writing from a jail cell. How do you have that mindset in those circumstances? I think it's because of his outlook on life and how he's processing everything through salvation. I, he's processing everything through God's goodness and his work towards us. And so um, we pick up in, in verse 14, he talks about do all things without grumbling. Like, wait a minute, If anybody had any reason to grumble, it's going to be Paul. Paul's sitting in a jail cell for these things, for preaching the gospel. He didn't do anything wrong. He's in jail for preaching the gospel, and he's looking at the believers outside, and he says, hey, guys, stop complaining. Don't complain about anything. Don't complain. Man, I feel like the thing that characterizes America these days is complaining. I mean, we're, we complain about everything. And if anything is not going our way, we raise Cain about it and, and cry, woe is me. And 
children of light, we are called to be different. We should not look like the world. Even when bad things happen, we don't look like everybody else because we don't believe like everybody else. The reason we complain is that we put ourselves at the center of everything. And if we look at Scripture, if we look at the way God has designed things to be, we are not at the center of everything. And our complaints often reflect putting ourselves at the center. Now, as we get in tonight, I want to put a little bit of context and say that and I'm, not, I'm not even in any attempt at all trying to minimize anything anybody's gone through. Life is downright difficult at times. And so we're not minimizing that. But people grumble because of pain. They grumble because of difficulty, discontent. What are a couple other reasons that people grumble or complain? Why do we do that? Taxes. Gas prices. Why else do we grumble and complain? Somebody not named Andrew. The weather. Sports don't go our way. Our team loses. School, we don't want to do work. Politics. The right person not being in office. The right person doesn't exist. Why else do we grumble and complain? All right, so we're, we're hitting some simple things. But let's get some serious issues. Because there are real reasons to grumble. The real reasons to be upset. What are some of the bigger ones? Andrew echoes taxes again. <laughs> Say what? Abortion. Loss. Chronic pain. Having no money. Broken relationships. Some of these things are serious. They cause real hurt, real pain. We're not minimizing that. We want to learn how to process that. And in spite of those circumstances, learn to still be able to give thanks and not let our joy be cut off. I believe that the fastest way to an ungrateful heart is grumbling. The fastest way to an ungrateful heart is grumbling. We have to learn to not grumble. Paul tells us to do everything without grumbling. But he never says that things aren't hard. So there has to be a different way we process these things. It is not, do not, it is not, do not pretend, or pretend like they don't exist. There we go. Paul is not saying pretend like nothing bad happened. That's not scriptural at all. You've never visited the Psalms if you go there. So what do we do in the midst of our problems so that we can stop grumbling? Because if we be honest, what does grumbling actually solve? That's the problem right there. So the pain might be real, but your response should cause some kind of healing or, or move forward. And grumbling won't get you there. It's a vehicle going nowhere. So a few subpoints that it's not in your notes that I want to hit, talking about this idea of grumbling under point two. Uh, emotion is a terrible leader. A lot of times our grumbling is centered in emotion and we're going through a pain and we get emotional about it. And I was of the mindset for a very long time that emotions were bad. Um, I've since matured and realized that emotions do have their place, but emotions aren't meant to be leaders. You should not be led by your emotions. If you are led by your emotions, everything seems off because your emotions ought to go all over the place and emotions are a terrible leader. Scripture tells us that our hearts are deceitful. We don't even know what we're thinking sometimes. 
So we're trying to determine what's going on through our emotions. It's never going to lead us to the right conclusion. We don't really know ourselves. Emotions should always follow truth. Emotions should always follow truth. So you find the truth and then line your emotions up with the truth and then they will become helpful to you. But emotions are a terrible leader. A quick story. Uh, a couple years ago, or actually it wasn't that long ago, about a year or so, I saw my old friend Megan Leverett in uh, Walmart one day. Um, it was actually this year because I believe everybody was wearing masks at the time. And so I see her, and uh, she, you know, she said, hey, Brett, we talked for a few minutes, you know, eight, six feet apart. And we start, said hello, and then uh, later on we post something about it on Facebook, and, and Megan makes a comment that how much I look like my father. I didn't curse her out loud. And I was like, Megan, that's so wrong of you. She's like, what? I said, don't say that. And she says, but it's true. I said, Megan, some things that are true don't need to be said out loud. Just because it's true, don't say it. I don't look in my face much. A couple times a day in the mirror when I'm getting ready. Otherwise, I can walk around and forget that I look like him. You don't have to say it out loud. Not everything needs to be said. A lot of us have this mindset that everything needs to be said. We need to clear the air and throw everything out there. But sub-point number two under two is not everything needs to be said. Not everything needs to be said. Proverbs 29 tells us that it is a fool who gives vent to his anger. A lot of advice that I saw, and I saw it on Facebook a day or so ago, and it said, man, just let it out there and you'll feel better about it. That's not always a good solution to your problems. Don't just let it out there. A wise person will know when to keep his mouth shut, when to hold back. Not everything needs to be said. But if you are going to say it, say it with a purpose. Say it with a purpose. If you have something that needs to be said, say it with a purpose. The first thing, there's two reasons I think you can do this. Um, you say it as you're giving it over to God and as you're sharing it with the body, somebody that's going to encourage you. So if you are going to say it, say it with a purpose. If something's going on, I mean, there's tons of reasons in the Scripture that we are, to, we are to say things to God. We cast our anxieties on Him because He cares for us. Psalm 55 says, to cast your burden on the Lord, He will sustain you. Matthew 11 says, come to me, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's lots of reasons to say something, but say things that are tough with purpose. Galatians 6 gives us the advice to the body that we are to bear one another's burdens. Share the things that are going on so the people who aren't in that, the people who aren't emotional, can offer you some advice that you can't see because you're in the middle of things. If you need to say something, say it with intention. Don't just put people on blast or put the situation on blast or just keep talking negatively. Say things with purpose. When we vent or complain with no reason, it causes the heart to become bitter and self-focused. We know people like that who always have something bad to say. Everything that comes out is always bitter. When they walk around hurt, sometimes there's some real reasons behind it, some real good stories why they are that way. But we realize that the person who was in that situation isn't looking for help. They're just letting their hurt and pain out. They've become bitter and made everything about themselves. 
So we have to guard against bitterness. We have to guard against this complaining all the time because what happens is it takes over our hearts. And it, it, it stops us from seeing the good and everything else. It stops us from seeing God's goodness. It stops us from seeing people's goodness. And we become hurt. And we won't let anybody help us. But like I said, we are not going to minimize the things that are happening. Point number C, my third subpoint, says that hard times must be met with truth. Hard times are real. And they have to be met with truth. If you were here this past Wednesday night, you had the pleasure of listening to Tim uh, speak on Psalm 102. The, the heading for Psalm 102 says, A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. When I was younger, we were, uh, played sports with Bushy Fork. We would have a, a little banquet every year. We were at Oakland Elementary School. Mom, I don't know if you remember this. And uh, they always had some guest come in. It was typically a young college player that was pretty good, and, and we would meet him and get his autograph, and it was a lot of fun. And we were standing in line one year to meet some guy from Duke. I don't remember who it was. He was a Duke player. It wasn't that important. And uh, as we were sitting there, I was standing beside Wesley Strader, and we're talking and just goofing off because it's a long line. And we're about four or five people back from the, the guy who was waiting to get his autograph. And, and uh, in our little, we're in our own little bubble, and Wesley starts singing this country song. And the, the, sign said, the song goes, there's a tear in my beard because I've been crying for you, dear. And so as we sing that song, uh, the guy who was signing autographs heard it. He doesn't say anything, keeps going. When we got to the line, he looks at him and says, what were you singing? And he goes, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. And he refused to give him his autograph until he sang the song again for him. And uh, so it was all in great fun. The guy was laughing. My friend was laughing. We had a blast with it. And uh, but the old country song, and Tim described this as a country song on uh, Wednesday night, but he's talking about there's a tear in my beer, right? If you read this section in Psalm 102, it says that his drink is mixed with tears. It says, for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. They're serious pain. He goes on and he describes a situation where you can see his bones through his body. I mean, that he's been suffering for a long time and has lost so much weight, you can see his bones poking through his skin. Not only has he been in pain, but it's a long pain. But Psalm 102 is a psalm of hope, not one of despair. What happens is the first half of the passage speaks on pain, and the second half speaks on who God is. And so in his pain, it's met with truth. Psalm 102 is one that I've studied several times in the last couple of weeks with some young people, and it's one of the passages that points out that God is immutable. It's a fancy way of saying that he never changes. I just like saying that word. God never changes. God is good, and he never changes. So in the midst of the pain, the pain is met with this truth about who God is and how God reacts with us, how he responds to us. God is present. God is good, and he's there waiting for us. Yes, pain is real. Your life has been hard, but God is right there to meet you in the midst of your pain. We have to acknowledge pain. And Ecclesiastes revealed to us, as we studied that a few months back, that, that there's a time for weeping. There's a time to be sad about things. This never says in Scripture, don't cry about it, don't let your emotions out. But it does give us a clear picture of not living in our emotions. Let them out, 
Share them with God, share them with people, and let them lead you to truth so that truth can meet you in your problem, in your situations, and whatever is going on. Point number three says that the best way to change our attitude, Shannon Allen, is to remember. Remember, we're having a great conversation in Life Together group. Um, Amber's not here right now, but I'll catch her second service. Shannon Allen wants to put a big word on his wall that says remember. And I was like, talk, talk to Kathy. She'll hook you up. He wants it big because this command in Scripture for us to remember is a big command. It's everywhere. This idea is everywhere. When it tells us in Psalm 46 to be still and know that I am God, it is not telling your body to be still. It is telling your mind to stop going through the crazy moments and look back on who God is. Read the first part of Psalm 46 as it proclaims who God is and how strong he is. He's bigger than our problems. He's bigger than all the world's armies fighting. He has more power. The best way to change your attitude is to remember. What are we going to remember? Number one, we remember truth. What does God's word say is right and real? Often in Psalms, the lament of uh, several psalmists is that they're following God and life is horrible and the people who are wicked are following whatever they want and life's going great for them. They're saying, God, how long are you going to let this happen? And they're looking at a very short perspective of life and not looking at the full picture. And it's often met with this idea that they're going to get what's coming. Just because they look successful now doesn't mean it's going to stay successful. So as we process our hard times, our emotions, as we process the things that we want to grumble about, we have to remember what the truth is surrounding that situation. If we want to know the truth, it's not subjective. Truth is a person. We look to God's word and the truth will be revealed to us. The devil often wants to give us a lie about a truthful situation. He wants to tell us a twisted, you messed that up, you're horrible. And God is saying, yeah, you messed it up, but I'm good and I forgive you. The devil wants to spin it where God wants to reveal what's actually happening there. What else do we remember? We remember who God is and how God has worked. We remember who God is and how God has worked. We remember this through Scripture and through our personal stories. I think Job forgot this lesson. In Job's dealings with God, as he went on and on, I believe he starts to remember and forgot this. And Job at the end starts crying out to God, and he's like, God, come on, man. And God answers Job. And Job wasn't ready. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or, uh, or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds as garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. So what I just read to you was Psalm 38. And it's this little section right here. And God goes on to answer Job by completing all of this. 
and he goes to the next page. He says all of this and then this part, and he keeps going through 39. And at 40, Job interjects and he says to God and answers God, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I have laid my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice. But I will proceed no further. God answers and Job says, yeah, I'm shutting up now. I'm good. All right, I, I was wrong. <laughs> my bad. Yep, that was dumb of me to go that route. I'm, 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 you're right, God. Mm-hmm. And, and then God keeps talking. and He keeps responding through the rest of chapter 40. He responds through 41. He responds all the way through 41. Then it gets to chapter 42. And Job confesses and responds to God again. And he says, I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak, and I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job forgot who God was and who he was. And he cried out to God, and he says, God, answer me. And God answered. And boy, did he answer. And Job was like, oh, man, yep. What was I thinking? God, you were right. You are God, and I am not. And God had reminded him of all the different things that he had done and how it was him at the center of creation and not Job. Remember how God had worked. Lastly, remember God's commands. What commands? Things in Scripture, things like do not be anxious. So a lot of us suffer with anxiety, and God is looking at us saying, hey, don't be anxious. All right, great. Remember that command. Brett, this is what you're thinking. Brett, anxiety is not one of those things you just switch off with a button. Yes, I hear that command, but don't just tell me to stop being anxious because that's not how anxiety works. So how do you just stop? You learn to process your your anxieties or your struggles or the things you want to complain about, whatever your situation might be, whatever you want to grumble about, you process that through Scripture. Not just read Scripture, but process it through Scripture. The word uh, Kelly's uh, doing a, a little counseling class through her certificate program, they use the word reason for that. You reason your situation with Scripture, and you weigh what you have going on with God's truth, but you're going to process through it and go back and forth making your list or however it looks like for you to process. You're going to go back and forth and compare them, tear it apart, tear the truth apart, dive in deep, do a study, do another study, do a word study. Don't just read the word, but process it, what it says. Then you use repetition. Man, how many of you learned the lesson the first time? I don't learn it the 19th time. Process it. Repeat it. Say it over and over and over and over again. One thing Scripture also calls us to do is meditation. Meditation is not that thing where you sit and hold your hands up and go, mm. not that kind of meditation. Meditation is that you memorize something so well that you can just bring it up just like that. So we work to memorize Scripture. We repeat things to memorize Scripture. And uh, sometimes we have Scripture we have memorized, but when we go to say it, we're like, Oh, man, there's a passage that says um, it's something like, uh, and then you might eventually get it, right? 
But we're not talking about that kind of memory on things. We're talking about learn it so well that it rattles off when something happens. There was a young man at the warehouse a couple years ago, and we're playing dodgeball. Man, he was into that game, and kid threw a ball. He jumps up, and the ball still hit him by the foot, but it, like, twisted him a little bit when it hit him. He falls down, smacks the floor with his head. And so, like, not only did he get out, but he smacks his head, and he's up, and he drops a word. Boom! Says a curse word. And I'm closer to him than Peter is to me right now. He says a really bad word. Boom! Looks up. Oh, sorry, Mr. Brad. I didn't mean to say it. And he runs over. like, come here. Let's talk about it. And I was like, I believe you that you didn't mean to say it. But why did you say it? Because when he was pressured, it's what was inside, and that's what came out. It slipped out because you gave it a home there. When you meditate on it, it's the fact that you gave it so much attention and repetition that it was deep down inside of you that when you were squozing, that's what comes out. Squozing, squeezed. What's the right word? You were squeezed. I was like, I said it. I was like, I'm saying the wrong word. Squozing is the right word? Squeezed. I'm not going to ask Andrew the right word because he's going to get it wrong too. Actually, I don't ask Andrew for spelling. He usually gets the word right. When you are squeezed, what's going to come out? That's what it looks like to meditate on something. You've processed it. You've taken the individual words, and you've got it. I'm going to close up with this one right here. Man, the first verse that I learned to memorize like that was First uh, Peter. For you are a church and race world preacher, the people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him, because you have a doctrine to his marvelous light. That was intentional that you couldn't understand it. That was on purpose. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I worked hard on that one. I worked like four months to learn that verse. Then I watched Andrew teach it to a room full of third graders in four minutes. I was mad. I was struggling to know who I was. And my actions were struggling to be the right actions because I didn't know who I was. And in this section in Peter, it tells me who I am. You are a chosen race, a world priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own special possession. I fought hard to have those things so deeply ingrained in my mind that when I was standing in the grocery store line, those words would come up and I would process them. I could meditate on it. And then when sin came at me, I would have a reason to stand and say, no, this is who I am. That's what it means to meditate on God's Word. Not just look at it once or twice and and say, I can find it when I need it, but to have it so ingrained in your mind that when pressure comes, it pops up. Meditate on God's Word. Can you just flip a switch and your mind be renewed? No, but you can retrain your mind so that it doesn't control you in tough situations. It is hard work, and you have to be intentional but it will begin to change how you think. Some of us need a mantra. Some of us need a motto. I often call it an anchor point that we've set our mind so much on something that when that pressure comes, we get there. Andrew gave us an example of one. It says, I will put my trust in you alone, and I will not be shaken. That's one of those things. If you're often shaken, memorize that. Say it so many times you're sick of it, and then keep saying it. So that when the pressure comes, you can stand and say, I'm not going to be shaken by this. A lot of us are looking for a big picture truth. 
and we want these deep things to happen to us, and we move past simple things. And then we have Michael Tuck stand before us and say, I'm losing my wife. But I'm still going to hope in you. I'm still going to put my faith in you. That's a simple truth that I'm teaching my little kids right now. We want some big knowledge, but he had his heart and mind set on faith and trusting in God because God has revealed himself to be good time and time again. A lot of times we're looking for these big things. We move right past these simple truths God has given us of who he is and how he works. How we move away from grumbling, we have to remember all that God is and all that he has done. We set our mind on it, put it in perspective to realize what do I really have to complain about when what I deserve is hell and what I'm getting is heaven. Who cares about the dumb little things that happen on this earth when we keep those things in mind? We want to become a thankful people. Let's stop grumbling. I'm going to start remembering. But it takes intention. What's the best way that we can remember? The Lord's Supper. Right there on the front of the Lord's Supper table it says, do this in remembrance of me. Or if it's old, it says, this do in remembrance of me. The best way in what we do as we meet together is we are called to remember. We have been made right with God. Because of his body that was broken for us. This is the body of Christ broken for you. We remember the blood of Jesus that was spilled for our sake. Not his. Not his good, our good. So that he could build up his church. Remembering what something costs is vital. As parents, we often remind our kids what something costs. Typically, they're the ones tearing it up. And we're trying to say, stop tearing it up. That was expensive. You tear it up and not buying it again. Remember what it costs. Because if you remember what it cost you, or cost me, because I paid for it, you didn't. If you remember what it actually cost, you wouldn't treat it like something that's common. You leave sticks and outside toys outside. You don't leave your bike sitting out in the rain. It costs too much to treat it common. You don't leave a PlayStation game sitting outside. You don't leave valuable things sitting outside. You remember what it costs and you treat it like it costs that much. Our salvation costs Jesus. If we remember the cost, we don't treat it lightly. This is the blood of Jesus poured out for you. Thanks be to Jesus. Let's close with a word of prayer. Or close with a quick prayer and a song. Father, give us the right mindset. Tell us how we should think about things. Help us to renew our minds so that we can process things through the right lens. Paul tells us to do all things without grumbling, but it's in our nature to grumble about big things, small things, and God, it's tearing us apart and keeping us from being healed. It's keeping us from walking as children of light and being a presence to this world. 
God, lead us to truth. Lead us to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Andrew.